Welcome back, everybody. This is Politics and the Humanities, a podcast from American University. I'm Tom Merrill, a professor of government uh, at American University. I'm here with my colleague, Sarah Marsh, who's a professor of literature at American University. Hi, everyone. We're lucky to be joined today by not one, but two guests. Uh, Melvin Rogers is associate professor of uh, political science at Brown University, and Jack Turner is associate professor of government at University of Washington. They're here to talk to talk to us about their big new book, and I can I just say it's a big new book, uh, African American Political Thought: A Collected History, which is just out from the University of Chicago Press. It's an anthology of essays about uh, I can we call it the African American canon? Is that a fair description? Um, so uh, we're and it does as all anthologies do. It, it I think it tries to uh, define the shape of. Uh, our collective imaginary about uh, on a particular topic. I think that's the ambition of the book. Uh, so it's big, not only in size, but also in ambition. And maybe I just start by, uh, first of all, saying hello to both Melvin and, and Jack. Uh, thanks for being here. It's a real honor. And we're really happy to be able to talk, talk about this book. So greetings. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you both. Uh, and maybe I should just start with uh, why why this book and why now? Well, this book is sort of really rooted in our friendship. Um, Melvin and I went to college together at Amherst in the late 1990s, and we actually met in a class on philosophy, race, and racism uh, taught by Robert Gooding Williams, who was is one of the contributors to the volume. He wrote the, the chapter on Martin Delaney. And that was sort of the, the start of a friendship between me and Melvin, you know, both having interests in political theory, in black history. And, um, and after we graduated from Amherst, we went to graduate school at different institutions. He at Yale and I at Princeton. And we sort of kept up our friendship and correspondence, you know, about, you know, he was really getting deep into American pragmatism. I was really getting deep into American transcendentalism. And, um, and we both were sort of developing interests in the African-American tradition. Um, you know, he primarily in Du Bois at the time, me and Ellison. And, you know, around the year 2007, we, you know, sort of came up with this idea of putting together a collected history of African-American political thought, sort of on the order of Strauss and Cropsey's history of political philosophy. Um, and so in, in, it was in 2011, that we really started to work on the project in earnest and we recruited authors, uh, figured out a table of contents and uh, had two conferences, one at University of Washington, one at UCLA, which Melvin was at at the time in 2014 and 2015. And now, you know, finally in 2021, we have a published book. Um, and so that's sort of the story of, of how the book came about. Do you want to describe the, the shape and scope of the book? Briefly, I mean, um, there's a lot of people here. There's some people who are not here. Um, you want to say something about the the, the scope of the, the book? So the so the book runs um, uh, from uh, Phyllis Wheatley, and it ends with uh, and it ends with Cornell West. Um, and we tried to uh, pursue a thinker-centered approach because. Um, you know, historically, the way in which the tradition has typically been interpreted by historians and even political scientists is always to sort of group it, group, you know, the tradition according to sort of ideological positions. And we thought that um, 
that approach often sort of flattened out the sort of landscape uh, of uh, the individual thinkers and it flattened out the sort of texture of their minds. And so part of what we wanted to do was, was pursue a thinker-centered approach that allowed for a more granular uh, understanding of what these thinkers were, uh, what these thinkers were up to, and of course, in the in, in the course of doing this, you know, we made some choices about uh, who would be in and who uh, wouldn't be in. But we took those choices to be the beginning, the beginnings of a conversation, right? An invitation, and in some instances, a provocation uh, to others to raise the question: Well, who? Who else ought to be in in the volume, or how might we reconfigure uh, 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 the, the 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 volume? And so, and so we characterize it, you know, to in response to your question about the canon, we sort of characterize it as a provisional canon, you know, as you know, you can't do a book like this without it being interpreted as the formation of a canon. But so what we're doing is we're being very open about it and saying, look, we made we made choices on these. These these are these are you know considered choices, but these are eminently contestable choices. And so we invite others' contestation of the way in which we. Um, designed it and um and we hope that you know 10 years from now there are competing volumes telling us how we've gotten it wrong and how the we the scholars the scholarly community can collectively do a better job of getting it right mm -hmm. it seems like that's the best that one could do because um i mean part of the ambition of the book is to i think you say in the introduction to be kind of a a recommended reading list which we as human beings need right we need someone to tell us these are things to um, pay attention to, and you're bringing people up, right? That uh, some of you know some figures that we know well, but other figures that many of us might not know well. Um, but that that important task of, I mean, it's really community formation from a certain point of view, from in terms of defining the boundaries of what we are collectively aware of, right? Um, I, I want to ask a question um, about because it seems to me that there's there's partly you just want to shine a light on many different thinkers, which is great. And, and you know, the idea of expanding the canon or having a provisional canon is one that probably would be, you know, other people who have canons would be do do well to take. But um, it seems to me that there's also a kind of a theoretical ambition. And, and let me try to pose or get you to talk about it in this way. Uh, I mean, I think many political theorists teach um, some African-American thinkers, um, you know, Frederick Douglass often gets taught, MLK often gets taught, and it often has the feeling of something like this, like, well, we know that uh, America has a, a history of racism that we're embarrassed about, we often don't want to talk about, by teaching someone like Frederick Douglass, and w well, it, it, in a way, it allows us to say the Declaration of Independence was right all along, right? That, that there's a kind of confirmation that even though the history is horrible, the original ideal was something that was beautiful and noble. And it seems to me, as, as I understand the introduction and some of the chapters of the book, that you're doing, you're not not doing that, but you're doing something more. And so I wonder if you could talk about um, talk about that aspect of, of how you see what the book is trying to do in the world. Um, yeah, I'll start on that, um, and and then since I mean you you're so great on David Walker and a declaration, I'll, I'll turn it over to you on that question. But I mean, 
we very much sort of take after, um, you know, sort of what we characterize as sort of the, the Nathan Huggins school of black history, which is uh, the idea that black history in the United States, it is American history. The two are co-constitutive and you can't tell the story of the United States without the story telling the story of black people. And you can't tell the story of black people without also telling the story of the history of the United States. And so, Coming from that point of view, that means that when we look at, say, how a speaker like Douglas takes up the Declaration of Independence, we're not simply looking at the way in which he sort of taps into a meaning that, that is already there, but we're looking at the way in which he sort of actively reconfigures the meaning and actively discloses it through his acts of creative reinterpretation. Uh, and so, so part of what this means is, is that you can't simply look at um, African-American thinkers and African-American thinking as an extension of a set of meetings that are already sort of lodged in the American tradition. Rather, you have to look at them as creative reinterpreters. Uh, and in some place, not, not simply as creative reinterpreters, but as uh, conceptual innovators uh, within that tradition and against that tradition. And, uh, and so in that sense, um, what these thinkers are doing is not simply, um, you know, extending, but they are reconfiguring and and, and reconstituting the tradition, uh, which they were born into many of them. I mean, you know, always against their will and, um, and into many of them in conditions of profound unfreedom. No, I think that's right. I mean, and, and in some ways I think it's appropriate to sort of see, what these figures are doing uh, as engaging in, in, you know, you know, Ralph Ellis and Cole, you know, the American tradition, a kind of site of symbolic action. And of course, Ellis there was borrowing, but, but part of what he wanted to, to, to sort of signal um, is that it is an opportunity to redeploy the terms in light of the conditions and the experiences that Black people are, uh, uh, find themselves in. And that in that moment, one discloses opportunities that were not uh, previously thought uh, available, right? And so, you know, one way to sort of think about it is that, you know, all that, that all of us right here uh, on this on this call, um, we make use of the English language, we make use of the alphabet, but it does not preclude novel sentences, right? And sometimes the novel sentences involves uh, breaking of the old rules, right? And the breaking of the old rules may actually point to a rupture, right? And at that moment, there are ways in which we actually are continuous because we're using one and the same uh, 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 vocabulary alphabet, uh, but in another way, not so much, right? And the question is, you know, the question is for us to think about those moments of, you know, why not so much, right? What has happened? Um, and that allows us I think that allows us really to sort of see these figures, particularly when they're deploying something like the Declaration, um, uh, that they are not just simply deploying it as the uh, as the founders understood it. Uh, they're often deploying it on radically new and different and different terms, even as they're using one and the same vocabulary. Right. So that there, there could be um, a, a meaning that was. Uh, I'm not sure if present at the beginning is the right word, but but somehow a, a rethinking of something that's not simply rejecting the thing that was there, but doing something new with it, 
right? right. Um, and and, I, and I, I can't help but think uh, this, this may just be me, but um, you know, Oakshot's discussion of intimations, right? That a practice might have um, a certain way of doing things, but might have problems within it. And now I think he thinks of a much more, how should I say, a tamer set of problems. But um, but there is something about that there's a kind of continuity as well as rupture that's going on at the same time. Um, and so I also want can I can I read you a sentence from your introduction and ask you to talk about it? Go for it. Um, and forgive me. <laughs> um, so here's the this is from page twelve. Um, and so you give three sort of theoretical reasons why this is important for theorists, not just like hear more people to talk about, but hear more a, a way of reconceiving something that political theorists and others have been thinking about for a long time. So um, African-American political thought and American political thought are also essential to one another and share a common historical fate. And when I read that, I thought of, um, there's this line from Ellison in the essay on the, the uh, 20th century fiction about that you could see American history as being carried out on the body of a, of a, a black giant as the scene of, uh, of the moral drama of American history. And it seemed to me that partly what you're doing, especially in this section of the introduction, is trying to show the way in which the stage has been something other than what political theorists have traditionally thought it was. Can you say something about that? Repeat that line from Ellison real quick, because I you cut out just then. I'm sorry. Let me let me try to I actually read the line. Um, Thus, on the moral level, I propose that we view the whole of American life as a drama acted out upon the body of a Negro giant who, lying trussed up like Gulliver, forms the stage and the scene upon which and within which the action unfolds. Yeah, I mean, I, I would need to think more about that particular metaphor. Um, the, the, I, but I think linking it to Ellison is, is absolutely right because in that particular line, you know, that, that is a, in some ways, an homage to Nathan Huggins. Huggins, I think was very much, you know, inspired by Ellison and, um, and Ellison's view of the American project as, um, a paradoxical, um, eminently ironic, uh, tragic and comic, uh, co-creation of people in conflict. Um, and you know, we, so Huggins sort of carries that forward in his own historical practice. Uh, it was very much absorbed by Jeffrey Ferguson, who was a teacher of both me and Melvin, the author of the chapter on George Schuyler, um, in, in the, in, in the volume. And, uh, since he died in 2018, the person to whom we dedicated the book, uh, Jeff Ferguson really conveyed that Ellisonian appreciation of American history to us. And, and that is sort of the, the frame of, of U.S. history being, you know, this tragic comic co-creation of uh, different peoples. And so the violence is not, um, the violence of American history is not peripheral to the meaning. It's central to the meaning of being in the United States. And, uh, and that's, I think that's something that is shot through the volume. Well, and this is, is the distinction that you set up um, between African-American political thought and maybe what's thought of as the Western tradition or European political thought is that while the you know, traditional Western tradition is preoccupied with discussions about, you know, rights and sovereignty, 
um, there is this thread that runs through the African-American tradition that has to think about white supremacy as, as a fundamental force. Can you say a little bit about the tensions between those two traditions and how the volume maybe mediates between them? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a rich, you know, that's a rich question there. Um, and I think part of what we were sort of going on about in the introduction is to try to help the reader to see clearly, uh, and I'm sorry for the feedback, but to see clearly the sort of problem space in which African-American political thought develops. And that that problem, state, problem space is not principally a question about sort of how do we sort of legitimize the polity? How do we find grounding for rights over and against monarchical or um, uh, theocratic uh, regimes? That's not sort of the problem space, right? The problem space here is sort of how do we deal with a kind of constitutive disregard that seems to run alongside um, uh, a, a political society that claims itself to be committed to freedom and uh, freedom and equality. And so that part of then, uh, uh, part of then or what the question that emerges for the reader is just how is it the case that one can be so committed to those principles of freedom and equality alongside white supremacy, colonialism, dispossession, land dispossession, and like. Um, and part of uh, what we want to do on the one hand, right, is to sort of stake out a problem space in which black folks are theorizing about the meaning of the good life, the meaning of political society, how to understand human nature against the backdrop of white supremacy. So we want to do that on the one hand. Um, but we also want uh, uh, to, to, to raise for the reader the ways in which the suffering of black folk reveal the undercurrent, the dark undercurrent, right, um, to, to, to the ways in which American society has been organized. And then ask, well, then what must, what must happen in order to really realize equality and really realize uh, a, a freedom? Um, because to ask that question, right, is to run up against an existing tradition that in some sense is exhausted yeah. and to turn toward a tradition that has new resources. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, it, it focuses us back to the Declaration in some sense, right? And this is, the, you, you cite Edmund S. Morgan in the insight that the founders had a particular view to what unfreedom meant and how freedom might be constituted in a new republic because they, they watched what unfreedom looked like on their own plantations, many of them, right? So this gets us back to the to the founding of the country and the history that leads up to it, right? I mean, I think that's why Wheatley is such a such a critical starting point, right? It, it, exactly right, because even there, right, Wheatley, um, uh, you know, Wheatley, as we see in the first essay, um, Wheatley is very aware that the unfreedom. Uh, your listeners can't see my skin, my, my <laughs> close here, but that the unfreedom um, that the colonists you know, uh, uh, um, uh, seemingly experience in comparison to black people is is metaphorical, right? Right. Um, <laughs> right? Um, and what you also come to discover from Wheatley through David Walker um, is that um, the, the 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 sort of colonists inserted 
um, uh, a very interesting distinction. That is to say, a distinction between the political slavery that that, it, that they experienced, that was a violation, um, and the sort of chattel slavery that 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 black people experienced, which they seem to be quite. Um, in disagreement about about whether or not that was a violation, I put it in disagreement because we know that there were um, uh, uh, there, there were uh, um, uh, actors during the period. You know, Tom Paine is is one, uh, for example, that had, that had deep concerns about uh, about slavery. Um, so 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 we we, we want to be true to to the fact that there was some internal conflict. But the fact remains is that the chattel slavery story, um, uh, as being able to uh, run alongside freedom. One won the day. And the other point that sort of brings up is, you know, the necessity of, you know, the tradition of black political thought in order to help resolve, you know, longstanding confusions uh, within European tradition, which is, I mean, this, this confusion between political slavery and chattel slavery is a confusion that goes back centuries. And so, you, yeah, you see it, you know, in the founding generation, but you also see it, like, I, I remember I seeing, you know, seeing not willingly, but uh, being subjected to a speech by Michelle Bachman in which he said that the, Amer the, the ACA, Obamacare, is slavery. And I'm um, thinking, like, how do, how do we come to think that, you know, that uh, Obamacare is, you know, I mean, you may, you may have objections to it, policy objections to it, but seeing it as tantamount to slavery, um, that, that seems a bit of a stretch. But nevertheless, this taps into this very large tradition in, you know, American libertarian thought that sees any sort of form of state intervention as um, as a as approaching enslavement and um, and so I think one intervention I hope this book can can sort of help make into that discourse is say hey let's 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 make some distinctions here uh, between you know chattel slavery and other more metaphorical types I'm reminded, doesn't uh, Burke says someplace uh, makes a point very much like the Edmund Morgan point, right? That that the American colonists, you know, talk so much about um, you know slavery to the king because they had they had the image of it, and in a way, form their imaginary, even though they hadn't, they they were unwilling to sort of follow through and think through what that actually meant about the human beings that they were living with. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Burke was on to that point and thought that American enthusiasm for freedom, you know, is it uh, was directly derived from their their horror at the experience of slavery that they white americans themselves had created so this might be a good time to pivot um in addition to editing the volume you all wrote chapters um for the collection uh and melvin i wanted to ask you about about your work on on david walker potentially in relation to the some of the claims of the declaration uh, because Walker is taking up in his appeal to the colored citizens of the world this genre of of the appeal, right? Which is is the same form that Jefferson used, right? In in some sense in the Declaration, and um, I was hoping that you could just talk us through your argument about Walker and how he's transforming the genre of the appeal to think about citizenship in a racialized society. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, so one of the things that I'm often interested in doing whenever I sort of handle um, uh, a thing like David Walker um, is to sort of show um, the way in which he sort of sits in, sits in a tradition, 
uh, he's sort of rhetorically sophisticated with it, um, and then he can show you how it can do other things. Yeah. Um, and so the appeal itself, um, the, the sort of, it, you know, it goes back um, a, a century, uh, and the idea always involves, um, when we speak about appealing to, we're, we always have in mind that we're appealing to some high authority to render a judgment regarding some situation we find ourselves in. Um, and the sort of the power of the appeal is not sort of, you don't readily sort of see it when you think about David Walker's book until you think about the whole of his title, Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, but in particular, very expressly of the United States. And, it, and the immediate question, as I try to argue, the immediate question that, that you're presented with is, well, how is he using the word citizen? And part of what I try to sort of argue is that you come to understand how he's using the word citizen by focusing on this other term, that is to say, the term appeal. And so he's appealing to African-Americans to judge themselves, to judge their world in a certain light. And by doing so, they basically bring their capacity for citizenship, their citizenly standing into existence. And this, of course, um, uh, the, the sort of novelty of it is the application to African-Americans. Mm -hmm. We know um, uh, uh, the American colonists, Jefferson, the Declaration, they were doing effectively the same thing. Yeah. And so that the, the language of the appeal already presupposes a capacity, the very capacity that Black people were, were right, it was, right, they were understood not to have the capacity to judge. And that that's the grounding of our citizenly capacity. And that ultimately what we want to do downstream institutionally, right, is to build up institutions to reflect and harness uh, and deploy that capacity that we already have by virtue of being, uh, by virtue of being human beings. Well, and that points to the bifurcation of chattel slavery and political slavery, right? right. And I think, uh, Jackie, you're shaking your head. Can you, can you elaborate that point a little bit more? I mean, I'm thinking about the way that, that Walker is is engaging uh, a system of racial apartheid with a kind of normative political discourse that he insists is more universal than it than it may be recognized by the state. Uh, well, and Jack, I'll let you get in on this. I mean, in some sense, right? The point is, is that it is presupposed by the very movement of the colonists. Yeah. Right. Um, and and so in in some sense, um, the 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 uh, you know. Walker is merely deploying um, the sort of very tools and capacities that they presuppose as a condition of their own revolution, right? Their own resistance to domination. In, in this respect, even as even as they're, you know, they have in mind a distinction between political slavery and chattel slavery, the, the idea of being dominated or being at the arbitrary mercy of another it is in fact what 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 sort of binds them what binds them yeah. together. If you want to I mean, I, I can't can't say it better than you. I mean, the one point, and this is a point that you know I very much have learned from Melvin uh, and from his work on David Walker and on nineteenth-century um, African American political thought, uh, is that one of the, one of the, just as figures like Walker, you know, insist on a distinction between chattel slavery and political slavery. At the same time, um, figures like Walker, you have used their um, membership in a subordinated population, a racially subordinated population, in an enslaved population, as sort of a claim 
to special expertise in Republican political theory. Um, it's like, well, if, if this is a lingua franca, if Republicanism is a lingua franca, I happen to have personal experience in being subordinated and dominated. And let me try to shed some light on this phenomenon that you've made the um, sort of groundwork of your public philosophy. And then, so you have them, you know, sort of the, the excluded using their experience of inclusion as a claim to not uh, to to not just inclusion, but as a claim to expertise within the public philosophy, which supposedly justifies their exclusion. Yeah. Yeah. So Melvin, can I get back? I want to talk about this notion of judgment because years later, James Baldwin would write in letter from a region in my mind that one of the chief obstacles uh, to you know, racial egalitarianism is the inability of white Americans to to allow themselves or to want to receive judgment of of black people. And does does Walker have a sense that the judgment goes both ways, or is he focused in the appeal mainly on the on the judgment of African Americans as a as a as constitutive of citizenship? Right. I mean, so part of what is going on in the appeal is that uh, Walker is sort of focused on the judgment of African-Americans because he wants to say um, that freedom is the kind of thing that one partly needs to claim. Yeah. And so this, this attempt to sort of awaken the judgment of Black Americans is, is sort of calling them to claim their freedom. But he also realizes that that sort of merely standing up and judging that one is being dominated and being abused and that's unaccepted is only one part of it. That the other part of it uh, has to do with one's white counterparts. So this is why he says toward the end of the book, do you not understand the words of your Declaration of Independence? Here he's speaking to his white counterparts. And this is in part because what Walker is trying to suggest to his readers as African-American thinkers downstream most of them would want to do is to say, freedom is not the kind of thing, it is not a kind of individual property that we just possess. It is a socially distributed phenomenon that needs to be supported, right? And this is, of course, another reason why people like uh, uh, David Walker, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass, Anna Julia Cooper, uh, Du Bois is so concerned about the ways in which American culture is saturated, right, with norms of disregard, is saturated with a way of devaluing, right, ideas of devaluing and, and why one ought to devalue Black people. These are the ideas that are in circulation. And, 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 and insofar as those ideas are in circulation, it functions to justify withholding support um, withholding a regard for one's white, uh, for one's black counterparts, and in turn, of course, withholding, right, withholding, withholding freedom. So, so it most certainly, to now invoke Baldwin, the problem for Baldwin ultimately turns out actually not to be a problem um, uh, um, with 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 one's uh, with black people. The problem really turns out. Uh, to be with one's white or white counterparts. And there's a whole series of other reasons Baldwin wants to stay. Um, and we can sort of talk about that if one wants to. A whole host of uh, uh, reasons why Baldwin wants to say that. And, and John Drabinsky has a wonderful essay uh, on James Baldwin uh, uh, in, the, in the volume, much darker Baldwin, 
um, but, but, but Baldwin all the same. Melvin, can I ask a question about Walker, the, just the historical context of the appeal? It's published in, what, 1829 or 1830? 1829, which, uh, then we get a revision. What, I'm sorry, what? It's 1829, then we get a revision. Uh, 1830 is the final text that we mostly that we typically use it. So I have this theory that 1820s is a really important decade for um, this issue, slavery, right? Uh, and but part of it is that I think that people are really beginning to realize that, um, despite what the Declaration says, white America has no intention of doing anything about slavery. Um, and and you say in your essay, um, so it's all it's also this is an important moment, but right. So in Virginia, if I remember correctly, there's a constitutional convention in the early 1830s, which is the last time that slavery is sort of publicly discussed as an open issue. Um, but uh, there's a kind of um, solidifying of positions, especially in the South, that that and a kind of fear that in and seems to be in part prompted by um, David Walker. Right, and but that they they realize like what what the principles in a way mean, and they they get a clear view, and they want to say no, and also that that um, Walker, um, if if I understand your essay correctly, is the moment when the South starts saying, well, we can't have these things go through the mail, mm -hmm. right, and so like a real regime of censorship, uh, you might even have to censor the Declaration of Independence if you um, if you took that seriously. Can you just talk about the, what what his role in the historical moment is? Yeah, no, I mean, you get, um, so so basically the appeal is published, is circulating south through uh, seaports and, um, you know, basically, I'm being a little crude but basically southern governors are losing their minds, right? Um, and this is obviously, you know, this is a heightened period of rebellion uh, uh, generally, uh, slave revolts and the like. And so um, Walker's text, is taken to be a text that is that 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 will incite revolt, right? Um, and so there are a number of petitions in North Carolina and Georgia and Virginia um, uh, 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 to sort of ban uh, um, uh, um, to ban uh, slaves from reading or, or, or learning how to read or to be uh, uh, read too. Um, and so uh, uh, and, and Walker and Walker is in the is in the mix of this, right? And one of the you know, one of the things that I try to say in the essay is that, look, the way to read Walker's text, so most ones that say it's, an, you know, it's, a, it's a defense of insurrection. Well, that's partly the story. It is insurrection in a kind of if-then proposition. Right? If white Americans are not properly moved, then, right? And the reason why this if-then proposition uh, is, is the, the reason why I insist on this is because when he invokes the declaration, he does not invoke it as a, a statement to say, now black folks, we are divorced. Um, he, invokes it, he invokes it to alert his white counterparts. Um, look, if you really think freedom is as important to human existence as you claim, then you must know that one possibility, one likely possibility is that black people will uh, stand up, right? And might, might that moment of fear be enough to get you to judge rightly, to do right by the words of your declaration, right? Now, of course, um, another reason why, and I'll stop here, another reason why wokeism is important now beyond this period is that if you sort of read the appeal carefully, you'll see the threads 
of uh, of or you'll see you'll see various pieces of what becomes uh, um, uh, the tradition of African American political thought. So in Walker, you already see um, uh, a kind of nascent uh, nationalism, but not yet fully em- em- embraced, right? Um, and that goes off and becomes its own thread. Um, and you see kind of deep commitment to the American polity, albeit in, in an attempt to reconfigure it, and that becomes its own, uh, its own thread, right? You see Walker saying in his appeal, right, that this must be read by every man, woman, or child. Woman, child, oh, the status of women. Well, that becomes, uh, that becomes its, own, its own thread. The status of religion whether God is going to intervene or not. Uh, and Walker, Walker at one point seems to suggest that he would, but then he says at one point, no, God would not gra- right, drag you by your heads. Well, those become those become interesting and, and mature threads as we- as Douglas we, has a similar thought in the yeah. narrative, right? In which he yeah. says, is there a God? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so can I make a point about political theory? Uh, or to, Because it seems to me that something important in what you say, I mean, when, um, you know, it, when we're in, times of crisis, we appeal to principle, right? Um, as the colonists do in 1776. But part of the, the thing, and I, and I try to say this to students, I mean, even though like the colonists were bad people in many respects, when you articulate a principle, you don't know how far it's gonna go, right? You don't get to put it into a box and say, it goes this far and only so far and, and no more, that, that there's something that is um, unpredictable about what it's gonna do. Um, and that just seems to me something that's just important I mean, not just about this moment, but about what we do as political theorists in general. We're not sure where this is going to end up, right? We're not sure what, what these principles are going to turn out to mean when we when we really think them through. Mm-hmm. Well, the same thing is true in literary criticism. You really never know what the books are going to tell you, and I think that's sort of a you know a similar principle to the one we're talking about. Um, so I think, Jack, I'll pivot now and, and ask you about your work on, on Audre Lorde. Um, and this is, this is more of a teaching question. Um, whenever I convene class, my students often invoke Lorde's notion of the master's tools. And I was wondering if you could walk us through Lord's idea of the of the master's tools and the, the full quotation is you know the master's tools can, tools can never be used to dismantle the master's house, and I'm wondering if you can help us understand that within Lord's theory of a politics of difference and all the different meanings of the word difference that you chart out in your chapter, uh, and then maybe as a addendum to that, how might students apply that insight? to their own education. Yeah, no, it's, it's a terrific question. And yeah, it, it does come, come up, you know, frequently in teaching. Um, I mean, I think first off, in order to understand, you know, the, the, the sentence, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. You really have to put those words in their original local context, um, which is they're part of comments given at the personal and political panel um, at the second conference in New York, September 29th, 1979. Um, now, what did the master's tools and what did the master's house refer to at, at that particular conference? Well, this is a conference where basically Lord is fa- quite famously, I mean, this is a legendary moment in second wave feminism, is calling out 
academic theorists, white academic theorists at the Second Sex Conference for marginalizing the concerns of women of color, of lesbians, and of poor women, and of basically using her as a token to compensate for the marginalization of those concerns. And one of the things that she does in those remarks is she's basically showing the ways in which the white feminists in the audience are reproducing white capitalist patriarchy in their very practice of feminism. And so what she's showing is that, um, in fact, in their practice of feminism, they are using the master's tools and what they are doing is reinforcing the master's house. Um, not simply to the exclusion of women of color, of poor women, and of lesbians, but to the impoverishment of feminist coalitions themselves. So what she's doing is she's basically calling for a practice of coalition that sees differences among different groups of women as sources of, as subjects of discussion and as sources of potential strength. And she's calling for um, a, a the emergence of a new form of feminist coalition that is not built on the the uh, the white capitalist models um, that second wave feminism has taken on um, from white capitalist patriarchy. So when she says a master's tools will never dismantle a master's house, what she um, is calling for there is is a more egalitarian practice of women's organizing. And what that means concretely for the white feminists in the audience is that they need to critically interrogate the way conferences like that are organized. They need to critically interrogate the way in which they rely on women of color to take care of their children while they're, they're away at those conferences. Um, they need to inter interrogate the, uh, the, the matter of conference fees and whether or not conference fees are, are marginalizing um, feminists that cannot pay those fees. Uh, so within so I think that the way to teach that particular um, sentence is by doing a very close analysis of that address and of its context. And that only by doing a very close analysis of particular concerns of it can you really derive what the master's tools will never uh, uh, dismantle a master's house means. Now, as a general proposition, however, and that's how students usually use it, as a master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. The general proposition that, um, um, that, that that's a more problematic proposition generally, because I think one thing that the African-American tradition shows is black people using the master's tools all the time, um, but they never use them as given. Um, they always use it with a creative turn. So the classic example, I think, on this is literacy. Um, you know, when you think about it, literacy is sort of a classic master's tool, and depriving people of literacy is a way of enforcing their enslavement. What happens when someone like uh, Frederick Douglass acquires literacy? You know, it is a master's tool. He uses it as a way of unlocking a way to freedom. He then uses it in ways such as like writing fictive slave passes and writing fictive free papers in order to uh, um, make his way to freedom. Uh, and finally, then he uses the master's tools uh, as um, and 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 turns them against white supremacy in his own practice as an abolitionist and is arguably the greatest orator of the 19th century. Um, so I think that we have to, in, with students, you know, in terms of the master's tools, yes, we have to show them what that means in this particular speech. But as a general proposition, I think we actually have to problematize it because um, I, I think that, that the lesson from Lord, the general lesson is not the master's tool, it's not that the master's tools will never dismantle the uh, 
master's house is that the master's tools as given um, what often subordinated populations take the master's tools and then use them in new and unsuspected ways that can have a dismantling effect. Um, so I think that, you know, in teaching, uh, that is actually an opportunity to problematize and to complicate in very useful ways and to show the ways in which subordinate populations actually use the master's tools all the time, but in ways the masters never would have suspected. I mean, it makes me think about, I mean, it makes me think about Melvin's point about the appeal itself, right? That it's this particular rhetorical form that is, that is taken and repurposed um, as a, as a rebuke to the declaration or as a way of questioning the declaration and imagining, sorry about the feedback, new new ways of political action in the world. Um, and so the other question, Jack, I have for you is when students think about their own educations as being a kind of tool, um, a tool for liberation, a tool for intellection, um, how the Lord's insights help them see their education as a self-actualizing process? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, on the one hand, I mean, I think Lord radicalizes a certain idea of self-trust, um, of learning to, for, of people of all different experiences, of all different bodies, uh, learning to sort of trust the reactions of their own body, to trust their own feelings, their own effective responses uh, to the world and to injustice, and to use those as sources of knowledge. Um, so on the one hand, you know, she's sort of a radical, a radical practitioner of self-trust. Um, on the other hand, um, she not just encourages, um, but you know, I think exhorts everyone to put their own sense of the world into conversation with difference um, and to test it dialogically. I don't want to make her sound like J.S. Mill, but, um, you know, there is a commitment in her to um, a sort of uh, a, a dialogical testing of one's own impressions of the world. Uh, and that the, the idea that through this sort of processes of dialogical testing that we can arrive at new truths about experience um, and so, uh, you know, in, in terms of, you know, education, um, you know, I think, you know, what, one thing I try to, to, to use her in a classroom to do with my students is to, first off, um, help them, you know, see how she uses embodied knowledge, her own sort of reactions as a uh, woman for whom her world was not designed um, to uh, use the, those embodied reactions in order to sense injustice in her environment. Um, but at the same time, um, she really had confidence in the ability uh, us to use language to speak across difference. Um, and to also, I mean, she, she cuts her teeth on, you know, uh, certain romantic poets. I believe it's, you know, um, Byron and Shelley are two of the, you know, first poets she studies as a teenager. And though ultimately she gives, um, you know, her poetic practice becomes much broader. Um, she, she, you know, I don't think she ever shied away from using the master's tools occasionally in order to, you know, merge with her own experience and to articulate new insight.
So the the question about uh, the romantic poets and uh, Lord's reading of them makes me think of a bigger question I have about the volume, which is that many of the writers here are writing in literary traditions, memoir, poetry, uh, novels. And I was wondering if you both could say a few words about why is it that literary form pre presents this forum for thinkers in the African-American tradition, right? Why are these genres so valuable to the kinds of political action the writers want to undertake? That's a rich question. Um, so I suppose I have two kinds of responses. Uh, one kind of response is um, that in a context in which one's capacity to reason and to judge uh, is thought to be non-existent, that um, the literary, rather than the philosophical, becomes the way to sort of circumnavigate, right? So that one is engaging in contestation, right? But it's, but it's, but it's, right? But it's taking place um, uh, through a site or through a genre um, uh, that is not typically sort of thought of in that way. But I think another another way of thinking about this, um, which is different from the first, has to do with um, African Americans thinking: What is the genre? Uh, and I'm putting it in these terms: What is that mode of engagement that will help? Worry about the feedback that will help deliver. Right. The, texture of the lives that, right, the texture of our lives, the texture of the harm that we're experiencing. And so now the, the novel, the poem, the biography becomes quite central. And it even becomes central in context where one is not actually trying to be, or is not primarily interested in being uh, biographical, right? Du Bois is classic in this regard, right? Um, but basically, the point is, is that how do I deliver, right? The 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 sort of um, the depth and texture, uh, and thus, you know, this is these genres make themselves more available to doing that than, let's say, the 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 idea of the treatise, right? I mean, it's something about the embodied character of life that you're, you're never just a brain in a vat, you know, or, I don't know, John Rawls thinking of, you know, elaborating a whole theoretical system, you know, all by yourself or something. Um, isn't there also, Melvin, I mean, I, if to maybe, uh, I was thinking about Desmond Jagmahan's essay about Booker T. Washington, and not to get all Straussian, but it's a way of, of, of saying certain things that you don't want to say directly, right? That there's something there's something important about that both for self-protective reasons, but also maybe for deeper reasons. Um, that the, the literary form has has uh, virtues that you know uh, a more theoretical treatise might not have. I mean, I do think that uh, Booker T. Washington, you know, a figure that's not in the volume, James Wilden Johnson, for example, I do think that there's some figures that can, that sort of fit, um, uh, uh, um, you know, the kind of 
uh, reading that Desmond gives of a uh, uh, Booker T. Washington. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not confident um, that that is uh, a sort of a sort of a sort of central uh, a reason um, um, because you mean for right these black thinkers mean for ordinary everyday folks who can read to be able to read this and to receive the deliverances right to sort of receive the message that is being that is being offered uh and in that way i think it is it, it, it it's 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 less sort of uh, uh, clandestine in uh, uh in that regard uh even if it's a different means of showing how one can sort of deploy judgment and, 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 and the other the other thing i think we have to take into consideration on this is that um, and I think this is true not just only of African American thinkers, but of all sorts of different thinkers within democratic traditions, is that they've been excluded from the philosophical establishment, um, and they have not had the wealth and leisure necessarily to pursue mm -hmm. the philosophical treatise, you know, which is sort of the tradition, all the traditional um, uh, genre of uh, political philosophy, and so they've you know used other genres. Um, Lord like to say that. Uh, the poem is is the uh, most democratic genre because a poem can be written on a lunch break. Um, it's it's a, a genre that particularly fits working class life. Um, so I think that's one point. The the other point, I I do think that I, I don't think the Straussian sort of invocation of Strauss is completely off. You know, just one quick anecdote here. Years ago, I taught seminar on on Frederick Douglass and James Baldwin and for one of my students was really sort of taken with the way in which Douglass sort of celebrated free thinkers throughout life and times Frederick Douglass and and he you know he the more and more he convinced you know the more and more we read the more convinced he was that, that Douglass was a closet atheist and he wanted ideas on how to you know to sort of test this idea I said well all right well go read Leo Strauss's persecution in the art of writing and see if sort of that, you know, his idea of the esoteric strategies of the closet atheist sort of apply. Anyway, he goes, writes his paper, and the whole thing fits like a glove. You know, Douglas's, Douglas's writing gets lively and colorful whenever he's talking about free thinkers. It gets sort of stayed and orthodox every time he's talking about orthodox clergy. And um, and the student, you know, came away, you know, you know enthusiastically um, convinced that, you know, Douglas was a closet atheist in life and times, and he used sort of Strauss to kind of get at this point. Um, and so, so I, I don't necessarily, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not an endorser of necessarily of Straussian text, uh, textual strategies, but I do think there could be points of contact between the Straussian tradition and, you know, certain African-American texts. And, you know, one of the first white, you know, political theorists to pay attention and take seriously um, black texts was Herbert Story. Another was Wilson Carey McWilliams, who even though he wasn't, you know, a Straussian per se, um, he's called himself a fellow traveler um, of the Straussians. Right. I have that storing volume that one of those anthologies that uh, African-American thought right from the 70s. Um, in our time left, I want to ask a question about teaching. And uh, and so partly just your experience as teachers, but also your um you know, ask for recommendations. So Sarah and I, you know, teach a first year seminar together. And we're always thinking about what are, what kinds of texts are right for students at that stage, what kinds of texts should be part of a general education program, understanding by that, not let's like the eternal canon that, you know, everyone should know, but but somehow a set of texts that's both deep and rich, but also right for the students that are right in front of us. 
And um, I, I guess I want to ask, would start with an anecdote and then ask for your recommendations. And, and the anecdote is this, I was, I was talking to a black student just recently, we were reading James Baldwin. And, uh, and she said to me, um, this is a hurtful text. This is a harmful text that, that the, the, the amount of trauma is, is serious. And I just don't, I just don't need any more of this basically. And so we got to talking and she, and she was talking about lots of other classes she's had. And she said, I often feel like I'm um, sort of spotlighted. I'm the only person of color in the classroom. And all of the texts that we read are depressing, demoralizing texts of trauma. And, and I had to think, right, because of course I love Baldwin and, you know, I have all kinds of theories and, you know, I, interpretations and whatnot. Um, but it, it made me think like, what, how do I, what should I say to that student? And how should I think about the text that I pick in the light of those concerns? That's the tradition. I mean, I don't, I would, you know, um, let me, you know, the experiences of joy, of hope, of possibility, of love um, in this country for Black people, um, it stands in an intimate relationship um, to the denial of all those things. And so to read Toni Morrison, um, any of Toni Morrison's texts, is often to encounter those wonderful things. But they will always be laced with this dark and tragic undercurrent. And one of the things that I think is quite compelling about this tradition is that what it foregrounds with respect to the condition of Black Americans, um, the tradition really wants to say is a feature of living a human life generally. What they, are, what they are interested in doing is trying to guard against um, um, uh, the kind of uh, categorical um, and sort of systematic um, uh, experiences of harm and devaluation that is visited upon them by the polity to which they belong. But that is not to say that they, that they want to disabuse us that, that exclusion and domination and denials are not part of, um, uh, is not part of what it means to live the messiness that we would call the human experience. And in fact, this is by right, someone like Bolin wants to offer, this is in part what one's white counterparts want to deny. They want to preserve that innocence. Right, to really deal with what is happening with respect to their black counterparts is to deal with their own need, their own erotic attachment in some moments um, to engage in this kind of harming of, 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 of Black people, right? So, so to put a final point on it, what these figures want us to understand um, is that denial, harm, punishment, these are part of a human life, right? Um, and it is part of living a democratic life in which we share what they want to guard against is that that experience only falls, that is to say the bad only falls on a certain segment of society, right? right. So that the real distribution, as we say, of benefits and burdens, yeah. right. Um, right, are not are not really shared. Right, right. but there's an insight into the, the tragedy or the, the pain, the sadness yeah. of life. 
that yeah. can't be avoided, but yeah. that it can't doesn't have to take this particular form. Right. Right. So what would you what do you what do you do with students? What do you do with freshman students? What do you think would be a good text if we if we were expanding the canon or expanding what we were doing with freshmen? What what would you recommend? I mean, the, one of the texts that I always sort of is sort of go-to text for me, and I start many of my classes with is a text by um, Ralph Ellison, uh, nineteen seventy, uh, "What America Would Be Like Without Blacks." And um, I mean, it's yeah. this amazing, you know, sort of excurs, you know, sort of basically excursion through American history, where, where, where he, and he argues that the fantasy of an American without blacks is as old as the nation itself. He goes through the history of colonization. Um, you know, he goes through the, the fantasies of uh, of uh, black extinction that occur in the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, he also goes through um, African Americans' own sort of embrace of uh, back to Africa movements during the the Garvey era, um, and recently with with you know during the the era of Malcolm X. Um, but then he, then he sort of makes this turn that, you know, this idea of an America without blacks, you know, is ultimately um, a fantasy because um, a black and white and Indian identities, he says, are, are complexly interwoven. Um, and uh, that what we think of as American blackness, well, it's, it's been something that's been forged, you know, on American soil and it's been forged through the English language. Um, and so, it, you know, there's, there's, and there's no sort of pushing the rewind button on, um, on the way in which the, the, the institutions and language of the colonizer imprinted themselves into the culture of the colonized. Um, uh, but, but he also then sort of goes on to, you know, show in the way in which, you know, the dominant white elite also sort of took on one of the things they took on was uh, some of the rhythms and cadences of black speech. Um, so he, he talks about the way in which, uh, you know, so below our, our most polished Harvard accent, there's a daze and doze. And if there's such a thing as a Yale accent, you know, there's, there's a, um, what he says is quote, a Negro whale in it. Um, and he says that this Negro whale was probably introduced by John C. Calhoun, who got it from his mammy. Uh, and so what he's able to, to do, he, well, Ellison sort of models this ironic distance um, from uh, the ability to observe the pains of our experience uh, to, uh, to, to witness their complexity, uh, but also to turn them into um, a source of not just illumination, but also of laughter. Uh, and the way in which, and so, and this is very difficult to do. It's very difficult to become a, a laughter, you know, a laugher at wounds, especially when, you know, those wounds are, as Melvin said, disproportionately borne by one set of people versus another. Uh, but, the, you know, Ellison models, you know, sort of, I think, sort of productively ambivalent ways of, of relating to the pain of American experience uh, that produce illumination. And, um, and sometimes I find that students that can be helpful for students to take on. That's great. I appreciate that. 
that's a good suggestion. Melvin, do you have something you want to recommend? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm more like Jeff Ferguson. I sort of throw the book at you and you just kind of work through it. Um, um, you know, I, t I tend to, you know, I tend to think, you know, I, I tend to think that reading, you know, uh, is, is, is an exercise. It's a struggle. Um, and that if you don't, if you don't feel that you're stretching, if you don't feel that you're on your tippy toes trying to get it, then something's not right. Um, and so, um, uh, and, and, and so, you know, I, you know, um, uh, David. You know, David. I, I. You know, David Walker's text appeal is a great uh, is a great text in part because students never heard of David Walker, um, um, and it's a great start if you want to say other things later downstream about the tradition because you will see the threads in uh, in uh, in David in David Walker. Um, uh, so, so David Walker is a, is a is a figure I like to to, to start with. One because it's a pamphlet. So in this, so in this regard, I really want to take seriously his claim: every man, woman, and child. Okay, so it's meant to be um, uh, sort of egalitarian in this in this way, um, and it uh, uh, and uh, this text is selected partly because it's deceptive. Students think um, uh, that the that the first cut is the only cut, but the text is meant to stay with you. You're meant to linger on it. Um, and when you linger on it, you come to see that the first cut, um, that there's more going on, that there's a story about God here, that there's a way in which he's trying to dethrone Jefferson and install himself. Um, there's, um, uh, um, um, uh, there's a way in which he uh, uh, um, really sort of uh, uh, attacks a particular black woman uh, in Article Two, um, and one of the things that you come to realize in a kind of ironic fashion is that the very attacking of her um, means that she's actually an equal. Um, uh, um, that, that that is to say that she can understand just like everyone else the demand of freedom. Um, and and how she ought to respond to it, um, and and so there's some interesting stuff going on there that the, that the students typically get a uh, get a kick out of, um, and and so you know I, I I you know I think it's a rich you know I think it's a rich I think it's a rich text, um, a familiar figure, but not the text itself, not the text that people would most would most want to use, but but the boys is the boys is dark water. Um, but I would use, but, but I use that text for, for let's say, um, uh, uh, freshman students uh, in part because I'm trying to push their, their, I'm trying to develop and push their interpretive skills. Can we make sense of these parables? Like what? Can and can we fold them into the bits that seem to be sort of to seem to be transparent? What's the relationship? Um, and it's also a text that actually stages the different kinds of genres that uh, um, African American thinkers often, uh, often, uh, often use. But I'm always using the texts that are going to push them the most, um, give them the hardest, give them the hardest time. Because at the end of that, you come out, you come out. The text then becomes yours in some ways. They're um, not used to reading texts, right? They're not used to the idea that texts have layers. Yeah. That there are irony. There's jokes, right? It's a descent. Yeah, like descend into the text, right? I mean, Whitman, right? What, what, what does he say? Right, he got it's a gymnast struggle, 
and that the reader actually has to complete the work. Um, um, and, and this, of course, right, is, right, we think of Du Bois' Souls of Black Folk, right, um, where he invites the reader um, to join him and study his words with him. This is sort of, right, so there's a way in which I try to, um, uh, I try to sort of, you know, look, democracy is not just simply the system we, we, we sort of live in, but sometimes it flows through us. And so I try to model a kind of, uh, a, a sort of democratic reading um, in, in, in which I want to authorize your judgment and I hope you will authorize mine in turn, right? Well, y'all make this point in the introduction that democratic life extends beyond electoral politics and voting booths are real important, but so, yes. so are classrooms and so are methods of engagement with our interlocutors who, who may not be alive today, but who are nevertheless there on the page inciting us uh, to understand who we are. Um, and that to me seems, you, know, you have this lovely line in your introduction about one of the criteria for selecting these texts is that they reward rereading. And I, I circled that. <laughs> and I think I'm going to tell my students about it uh, because it really does speak to the depth of, of the text and the way they keep talking, right? I mean, I think a lot about Equiano's uh, image of the talking book, right? These books are always talking to us and the key is to figure out how to listen. Yeah, I think that's right. Guys, I think we're, we're coming to the end of our time. Um, I just need to say one, one last thing to the two of you that this book is a big achievement, right? I mean, it's, I mean, it's big in size, but even more than that, it's um, it's like a landmark that is going to, you know, all of our books are sort of like messages in a bottle, and so we have no idea who's going to read them in the future and what they'll do with them. But um, this is this is like a it's like a gymnasium of things that that we'll be working on for a while, and that that I mean, you say in the introduction, it's like a recommended reading list. Well, it's going to take a long time to work through and to and to think fully about the things. But it really is, and I just want to express a sense of gratitude to both of you for having put this together because I, I think it is a big deal, and I think it's a, not only for political theorists but also for lots of people who are trying to make sense of this messed up world. Thank you, for our readers. Thank you for that, and we're grateful that people, really you know, um, you know, are taking up the challenge of the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that there is more to this tradition, and here I mean this more expansively, there's more to this tradition um, uh, than we know. Um, uh, and, it's, and, it's, and, it's for, and it's for all of us. Um, and so it's titled African-American Political Thought, but this is the, this is the American drama. Um, and, and these are resources. Right? We always have to think about what are the sources on which we rely Right, that we can turn back to to deploy, even if in new ways to grapple with the challenges that we have today. And and Chip and I hope that people will see the volume in just that way. That it is actually a resource uh, to think with, to think about, but to continue uh, uh, um, to grapple with the challenges uh, that we have today. Right. Well, so I think we're out of time, but I just want to say again, thank you to both of you for spending the time with us. Uh, we're going to be spending more time with the book. I know that Sarah and I will, and um, perhaps we'll talk again about other things. Sure, but, it's been a great um, conversation. Really great. Thank Thanks you so much for, for taking the time with us. Thanks. No problem. Thanks, y'all. Wonderful.